Welcome to the Emergency Mind Podcast. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is a space where we train ourselves to think and perform better during times of crisis. ER doctors or not, we all face emergencies in our lives, and this podcast is all about getting better at acting during times of uncertainty and stress and learning how to apply knowledge under pressure. So listen up, train hard, and enjoy, because you never know what's coming your way next. To learn more about building your emergency mind and to dig deeper into many of the concepts we get into in this podcast series, head over to our website at emergencymind.com. This episode is an interview with Dr. Eric Anderson. Eric is a board-certified emergency doctor and an attending ER physician at the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Alameda County Medical Center Highland Hospital in Oakland, California. He received his medical degree from the University of Minnesota and then did his residency in emergency medicine at Alameda County Medical Center Highland. After residency, Eric did a fellowship in population health and social emergency medicine at Stanford University and then went to New Mexico to work for the Indian Health Service as the chief of emergency medicine and trauma medical director for Northern Navajo Medical Center in Shiprock, New Mexico, which is where I was lucky enough to meet him. Eric is truly an awesome dude, and I'm very happy to have him on this podcast. We cover a lot of ground in this podcast, talking about running a rural emergency department with limited resources but an important mission, about the idea of acting quickly during the beginning of an emergency, and about the importance of compassion for handling yourself under pressure. As always on this podcast, our mission is to dive into applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide specific medical advice. Additionally, our opinions are our own and not those of our respective employers. All that said, let's get to the episode. I hope you enjoy. Eric, really, really happy to have you on for this and to get a chance to talk with you about this. I know we've uh, worked together uh, in the past, both on research projects and and in the emergency department, and I'm um, really happy you uh, agreed to come in and talk to me about this today. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's my first podcast, so I'm really <laughs> nervous. Welcome. You're doing you're doing great so far. Thanks. Excellent. I figured we could start with a case that the two of us worked together basically the first time we ever met, um, which was which was uh, like the first day that I came to join you all, and almost the very first case of the day, which was a, a, a person that had been involved in a bike accident uh, and had some pretty serious trauma. And and I'm wondering, um, do, do you remember that case? Absolutely. Yeah, very vividly. Excellent. It was literally the first case of the day. I think um, it happened at 7 oh four or something like that right morning. right and so so you know i was uh obviously an er doctor at that point but i was brand new to the system and brand new to the community and and this is you know you're sort of orienting me to the system um and and what was going through your head when we were doing that when, when you have a scenario where there's a potentially sick person uh and you have a team that you're you don't really know you're trying to get used to and and that maybe doesn't understand the context of how to practice or how to how to work under uh, emergency situations in your context. It's sort of an interesting thing to have happen to you, like to have a really critical patient on literally your first several minutes of being in a new emergency department. You know, it was a, such a different experience for me being there. You know, at that point, I think at least a year, mm-hmm. and being the medical director, and so it didn't. You know, it felt like a a big big moment. You know, just mm-hmm. because it was like a sick guy, we don't have the capability to care for this guy at our hospital, right? Um, and it was different for me because I knew everybody on the team. I knew sort of like the processes for how to do things. Uh, so I think that was pr- 
probably more stressful for you because everything was so new. You know, when we're talking about this, you know, emergency mind and and thinking, how do you think clearly under pressure? Uh, this was one of those situations where I think it it was a it was a little bit different for me because I I knew the steps that needed to happen to go you know how to take care of this guy. To be honest, it was also just great to have another person there because I was used to being completely by myself the whole time. Uh, that was a sort of an extra bonus for me. But I do remember that case. It was just kind of a, a bizarre way to start your your uh, career where you were working, right? Right, exactly. In that context, um, the ER doctor is often totally alone and sometimes is the only doctor in the entire hospital. And so understanding how to uh, how to run a case within that particular context is really important. And so so there's the idea of sort of developing systematic knowledge, right? Like how do you understand how to execute a plan in a particular place? Mm-hmm. Um, and then separate from that is sort of the idea of how do you uh, how do you execute a plan when you're the only person who's there capable of doing it? When you came out of residency and, and went out to work in this environment, what was that like for you at the beginning when you were learning how to how to practice totally on your own like that? Well, you know, I, I'm not sure that I knew exactly what I was getting into, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest. You know, I think that in general, we know the steps that need to happen to care for a critical patient. We just don't always know how to execute them. And in a new environment, if you're by yourself, if you don't have a trauma surgeon or a trauma team for someone with blood in their belly, you just, you know the steps, but it's very different if you're in a smaller place. And so the first couple times where that happened to me, we had a critical patient, still sort of like you just try and remember those steps that you need to take. Um, and I think you just have to try and prepare yourself to spend an extra few seconds listening to somebody else about how Hmm. a certain thing happens right most of the time if you're going to go to a new place and we're talking about the emergency department right like a a good you know a good analogy or a good example is like the 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 clerk or you know the charge nurse or some nurse who's been there for a long, long time probably knows exactly who you need to call and i think it's easy to get caught up in like oh do we have two ivs and like do we have blood here do we have platelets here that kind of thing and um it takes a second to sort of stop and listen and be like, what do we do in this situation at this hospital, you know, mm-hmm. which is something I think like you weren't really good at also. But I think like going to a new place like that, I think that you just have to have this sort of open mind um, and the humility to listen, even when it's really stressful. And that always for me has been like the key to trying to maintain some type type of composure when it feels like things are out of control is sort of relying on your team and knowing your team, right? Um, it, that particular case we were talking about where this guy comes in like critically ill four minutes into your shift, like you didn't even have time to like introduce yourself to everybody, I don't mm-hmm. think. But I, you know, that was what, that was the first thing I did when I got to small rural ED, try and make sure I knew everybody's names, um, and who had been there for how long and who seemed like they knew how to get a patient out of there fast if they needed to. Um, mm-hmm. and gosh, there's so many people who know how to do that, right? Like here we are coming from this, like big city, big training program. And we think that we have have like this amazing skill set, which, you know, I think that anyone who's board certified emergency medicine is a great skill set. But you go to a smaller place and you think like, well, I'm, you know, maybe you feel like you're bringing a lot of expertise to that area. But man, there's a lot of expertise that already exists there. They've been taking care of patients for a long time. And and there's the idea too of how do you map your knowledge into this particular situation. Um, and so you mentioned the idea of, of staying uh, extra open to input from other people, particularly people that have been in that situation before. Was there anything specific you did at the beginning to, uh, to try to shape the way that you think like that? I, I've always felt like the most important characteristic of an emergency physician is 
melody. You know, it just helps in every single situation, but especially when you're trying to manage sort of like really stressful circumstances. Um, so like the really practical thing, I think like I was sort of mentioning is like trying to get to know every person as soon as possible and kind of get a sense of how long that they've actually been there for. I think getting to know those types of people and, and that, that I think is um, a really important thing. You sort of have, have to like go into that situation and realize that you're the new person and despite whatever you think about yourself, you're the, you you really need, are gonna have to rely on so many people to uh, get the job done. In addition to the people and the system, was there anything you did differently internally in your sort of setup to the approach of a case when you find yourself in this smaller rural emergency department? One of the things that I tried to do was think about things that I could do quickly and immediately and things that I couldn't. And I sort of needed to remember to step back and take a couple extra seconds or a couple extra minutes to figure those things out. So there was a, a co-resident of mine who I trained with um, in Matt Kiefer, who would always talk about like fast tests and slow tests in a code, mm -hmm. right? So like you have um, your iStats or whatever is a fast test, you know, or a POCUS is a fast test. And then your slower test would be like your CT. And I think that that sort of expands when you're in these situations where you don't exactly know your surroundings is that you know that there are certain things you can do. Like you can make sure that you get two IVs in and you can send the appropriate initial test. You can still do your like fast tests. And then I think it's important to remember that, hey, now I can kind of, now I need to step back and just take that like extra minute that I wasn't used to taking because I'm by myself and I don't have a trauma team standing next to me. Uh, and trying to like sort of figure out those next steps. I knew that I would need to be patient and open to the extra few minutes that I wasn't used to taking. Those are the things I think were really important being, you know, by yourself managing. You know, we, we had some really sick patients there, right, Dan? I think like those extra couple minutes of, you know, either asking for help or or asking the, the team around you, wait, what do we do in this situation exactly? And being um, sort of bringing yourself to that place where you're ready to sort of listen more often than you would have otherwise, I think is uh, is the key. Hmm. And so, so the idea is you're almost describing a two sort of phases of an event, right? Like the the hyper acute phase. It's like your first minute of the case where you're you're sort of making sure that you execute a couple of key skill sets, and then you take a second, you pause, you go into this other kinetic where you're a little bit more contemplative, and you slow down your thinking and try to make sure that you you do the next couple steps right. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think about like when you listen to. Um, you know, some, some, some podcasts or something like that. And I always say the first step is IVO2 monitor advanced airway equipment at the bedside. Like that's just like a thing you say mm -hmm. on a board, oral board prep, you know, but I think when you're actually in those environments and you're actually by yourself and you're actually trying to manage a sick person, there are literally are just a few things that you can do immediately that make a really big difference. And then you have to just be like, prepare yourself that you're going to have to step back at some point and troubleshoot something that you weren't used to being, weren't used to having to troubleshoot. Yeah. And, and what, let's dive into that a little bit. So what does that mean to prepare yourself to troubleshoot something? I think it's like walking in there and be like, I know that I'm not sure exactly where every piece of equipment is going to be that I'm going to need today. Uh, recognizing that fact, you know, I would suggest that like the main thing is to be like open to the idea that you're going to have to be ready for uncertainty. And walking into that shift, you're like, man, this is going to be something I don't know how to deal with today. And I'm going to be able, I need to like remember that it, that's okay. I can breathe and step back and 
think for a second, because I think we get into these routines, especially if we're used to a certain circumstance, right? Like if it's just like cranking out patients or whatever, that we kind of like have our algorithm set up. And I think we don't always go into shifts in the emergency department with the idea that we're going to have to um, be flexible for that day. And this this idea of needing to slow down in order to turn on other systems of the brain and mm -hmm. needing to slow down in order to get to a correct answer that you might not be able to see if you're just bulldozing through everything uh, yeah. is really important. And I, I think that's one of the things that, that, that personally I find so interesting about emergency medicine is that we have these, you know, these two speeds of thought, right? There's fast first and slow second that we sort of kick on afterwards. There's this great, I think it's a Wyatt Earp quote that says, you know, you got to learn to be slow in a hurry. Um, mm -hmm. which I think is really applicable to that. And, yeah. and, you know, when I look back at some of the people that I was training with that were really sort of master at resuscitation, I, I always watched them do this. And they seem to have this really like preternatural ability to identify when you had to move fast and when you could move slow and, and which was the appropriate speed to it, what the rhythm was to it. Does anybody stand out in, in your mind as having that ability particularly and that was involved in your training? Oh, yeah. I mean, I can think of some great people who are always, you know, had that humility, had that sort of like openness to other people's opinions and be mm -hmm. able to slow down when it was necessary, um, especially when things got stressful. It's like I'm thinking of... Um, Jocelyn Freeman Garrick, who was one of my attendings at Highland, like she, she would always sort of, um, she always sort of like seemed to know exactly what was going on. But, you know, as I've observed her a little bit more and been around her more sort of as a colleague too, you know, I, I do sort of see her like take that step back and like absorb and then be like, okay, mm. this is what we're doing. But one thing that you kind of brought up before or that you alluded to was like, you know, that resuscitationists are the, you know, that's, that was where we sort of recognize that that skill set. But when I think of that with um, Jocelyn, for example, like I think of when the department's blowing up or when we have a tough disposition or something like that, you know, like those are sometimes some of the more stressful situations where maybe we don't have like one or two critically ill patients, but we have like 20 moderately sick patients, or we have someone who we just cannot figure out what needs to happen for them. We're talking to multiple different consultants or multiple different hospitals and trying to get, you know, what this is what we get placed in these situations, right? We're trying to get someone else to help take care of this patient. And that, that can be extremely stressful. And I think, um, gosh, how do you prepare yourself for those tough conversations with uh, consultants? Or how do you prepare yourself for having, uh, trying to sort of like exude that calmness or that like, let's all just take a step back for one second. Maybe it's only one second and that's gonna help everybody when you're dealing with, you know, six or seven nurses in a busy department, for example. And, and so I think that it's so easy to talk about these examples when we're talking about critically ill patients, but mm -hmm. I think some of the most stressful parts of our job or some of the most intense pressure parts of our job are not always with sick patients. You know, speaking of our experience in our rural emergency department, I can think of several examples where the, some of the most stressful experiences for myself and my colleagues were trying to trying to transfer patients and mm -hmm. no one would take them, you know, and it's maybe the appropriate, someone had a bed, but the person you're talking to, it didn't feel like you got across why they needed to be transferred or why your colleague at, at our institution felt like that patient needed to be transferred. Um, and so I think that being, being, you know, this sort of idea that I'm going to have to like go into my shifts and, and be able to step back under pressure or under stress 
and calm myself down so I can accomplish my goal applies to some of those situations as well. And so do, do you think that it's the same or a different set of skills that you marshal when you have different types of pressure that you're facing like that? I sort of feel like it's, I feel like they're similar and, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong here, but you know, when I'm imagining myself in these difficult conversations or circumstances that are like more indolent, I feel like the ability to sort of like, it's almost like I'm talking myself down, you know, like I need Mm -hmm. to sort of just be like, okay, time to take a step back. You know, maybe that, maybe that's just like a pause or a deep breath or like, I have to go get a cup of coffee right now actually that's what I really need you know but the sort of openness to those brief interventions for yourself is is what helps and I think a lot of those circumstances yeah obviously you can't get a cup of coffee if someone has blood in their belly but you can if like you're between conversations trying to transfer a patient for four hours so I was listening to one of I think it was one of the mcrit podcasts with Scott Weingart not too long ago where he was looking at um, techniques that come from the aerospace fighter pilot sort of world uh, and he was discussing the idea of something that that sounds very similar to what you're talking about, which is the idea of a tactical pause. You know, the idea that sometimes taking a step back, um, and this is something you you know you see in martial arts, you see all sorts of the times that you, like driving forward consistently isn't always the only way to do it. That sometimes you need to take that half step back and regroup yourself to to continue. Do you have uh, other than other than get a cup of coffee when you can? Do you have uh, do you have anything that you tend to use for a tactical pause? Any sort of a, a mantra or a, or a, an anchor point or, or or what do you do to take that pause? Yeah, let's like let's take our our examples of um, trying to trying to transfer patients or trying to deal with um, consultants or trying to get someone to help you take care of somebody in a remote place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as our example better. I, I get that example. I get this like analogy of like a tactical pause. Uh, I feel like in medicine, it's helpful for me to think of it more as sort of an interpersonal thing. And that means that that means instead of talking about like tactical or aerospace or something mm-hmm. that like it's personally, it's like a little bit harder for me to relate to. I try and think about like empathy or compassion or, or refocusing on the patient or something like that. And so one the thing that I always think of, it, this has stuck with me since med school, was we had a, I think it was a psychiatrist, gosh, this is so long ago, where um, he said that everybody is trying their best considering their circumstances, right? And I think that like, whenever I think of that idea, that like literally everybody around me, I truly believe is trying their best. Everyone has different circumstances. So maybe that doesn't always seem obvious. That always helps me when I'm trying to talk to a patient and that's not going well. I'm talking to a consultant and that's not going well, or things are really busy. And I feel like I need to sort of like organize my team to accomplish a task is like, sometimes it really just helps me to sort of do that sort of pause where I'm just saying, everyone's doing their best. And that's, all anybody can do right now and we're going to keep doing our best but that really just helps like reset me in my mind when i get into these sort of like interpersonal things um that we run into all the time right because our jobs are all always about people right um, and i think reminding ourselves that you know this this patient is trying their best given their circumstances this patient is absolutely trying their best that just like helps me reset and be like okay let's like work together it can reset a conversation it can reset a a conversation with a patient or a consultant or other members of your team a tech a nurse or whoever in the er right so you're obviously way nicer than i am which i love (laughs) Uh, i don't think that's true though (laughs) but uh 
but functionally, I mean, I, I really like this idea of, of, of believing that we're all in this together, right? And that's something I, I try to do and work with my residents to do as well, which is that we're all on the same team, which is to try to get the knowledge to this patient that needs it. And when you do that, when you find yourself in that, in that pause where you're revisiting the idea of everybody doing their best, just for one second, I want to deep dive on that. What does that look like? Do you, do you stop talking and take a breath? Do you like walk out of the room if you can? Like, how do you actually physically make that switch? Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that there has to be something physical about how you extract yourself from that situation, whether that's you know, if you're on the phone sitting in a chair, that means to get up for a second, or if you're in a room with the patient, you, maybe you do have to step out for a second and, and come come back again. Um, it's so hard to, you know, like you're talking about bulldozing ahead, like you can't reset if you just continue to go. And so I do think that there's something physical about that deep breath or that like exit from the room where you can recognize and have that self-awareness to be like, something's not going right right now. What is that about? I need to remember everyone's trying their best kind of thing. And it sounds a little bit cheesy, I guess, but um you know, just sort of like recognizing, recognizing that. I, and I truly believe that, like everybody does try their best considering their circumstances. And I think that really just helps. And however you do that, if it's like you said, walking out of the room, getting a cup of coffee, having mm-hmm. some chocolate, <laughs> you know, right on. Uh, I, th- I think you have to recognize that moment and then do something about it that's physical. That's That's been the key for, for me, at least. Yeah. And how do you recognize that moment? Is, is there a thing that you feel in yourself? Is there, um, do you have, you know, some like systems running in the background to try to ask yourself, hey, am I, am I getting, you know, am I on tilt here? Am I getting swept? Well, I think that, uh, I think we all recognize those moments, right? Where we're like, I'm, I'm so irritated right now. <laughs> like I'm so upset right now. And we feel that it might be hard to extract ourselves from that moment. It might not happen immediately, but I think the the idea that like something's different right now about how things are going, it's not going well, I'm feeling this way, and then taking that moment and be like, okay, I gotta just step away for a second. Everyone's trying their best. I guess I don't, I don't know I don't know how like how you get to recognize that moment earlier because mm-hmm. I guess earlier is better maybe um, as opposed to like maybe that's been going on for an hour right, but. Really- like whenever it happens, it happens. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't happen, right? Sometimes it's like your shift's been over for four hours and you're like, oh yeah, everyone was trying their best. Then mm. it's not that helpful. Yeah, that's interesting though. So so you're suge- you're sort of saying that that whenever you recognize it is the time to get to work on it. And which is, you know, one skill, which is you recognize you're being sort of swept or taken or, or you know, there's the, the Buddhist idea here of this thing called shempa, which is being pulled by a thought. So you recognize it and then you have your systems to try to address it and reset to your natural state, which is, hey, everybody's trying here and we're all on the same team. And then sort of separate from that is like learning how to recognize it on the earlier side of the spectrum so you don't make a mountain into a molehill, so you don't get continually swept by this sort of same stuff going on. I wish I had a wonderful answer to how to do that earlier. I'm not, I'm not sure I do off the top of my head, but something to work into or to look into for sure. Yeah. Hey, we're, we're all trying our best, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, you said this a minute ago, which is that, you know, we don't practice 
emergencies, emergency medicine doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? We don't just sit in front of a computer and, and press a button in order to try to, to deliver some knowledge. It happens in the real world, and, and that real world involves people and interpersonal relationships. And so understanding how each of us interacts with people, not just in a broad sense, but in that moment on that day is a really important part of our ability to deliver this knowledge when it's needed. Um, and, you know, coffee is, <laughs> coffee is very important, for instance, right? Like having, mm -hmm. having that uh, is really important and, and doing whatever it takes the day before to set yourself up for success for your shift. I don't know, did, did you work on that in residency? I remember that being a thing I was, I was struggling with, especially at the beginning with, you know, how do you eat? How do you sleep? How do you, how do you set yourself up for success like that? So I trained at Highland Hospital and the, the, we always had, we always had GI rounds. Uh, GI yeah. rounds was like lunch, right? Or dinner or something like that. So there was always, there was always a time where we would have GI rounds and it would, would be somewhere between like, you know, around a typical meal time, you know, when we try and all sort of get to a point where we could take like a 15 minute break and eat and eat. So it was sort of built into the structure of training that, Rec that recognition that everybody does need to sort of step away for a second and <laughs> and eat right like uh, I have heard this before about you know residents or 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 docs who are nurses whoever like who are like you know I didn't eat today I'm like man that's a problem you know like you got, <laughs> got it how can you how can you like I think that like addressing some of those like basic things that like human beings need uh, help you or, you know, recognize those those moments when things are stressful or do some of these like things that we're talking about that, you know, don't always go so well to sort of manage a, a difficult situation. If you haven't eaten in eight hours, like, man, it's gonna be really hard to recognize that moment. You're just gonna like keep bulldozing forward, being super hungry. And then all of a sudden the end of your situation is gonna come and be like, man, what happened there? It's like, well, I should probably should have eaten lunch. You know, <laughs> Some, sometimes things aren't as at that complicated. It's like just we just got to eat a little bit. <laughs> uh, I think all of us at one point or another have been through a shift where you look back and you're like, whoa, like, yeah, what what just happened right there? Maybe I should have eaten lunch. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. How many times did that happen? You know, <laughs> right. We're these very sophisticated. Well, you more than me, sophisticated physicians. But we also, you know, you need sugar to fire your neurons. Right? Yeah. And yeah. you need the ability to to have the the space and to have the structure you need to be able to make good decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we can talk about all these other sort of like mental tricks or preparation, but you just gotta eat. You know, <laughs> I want to go back for one second to something you mentioned earlier, which was again this idea of the fast test and slow test, uh, which sort of gets to the idea that there are things that you need to do and act on right away, and other things you can take another second and think through. When did you start? sort of teasing out the difference between those things and, and how did you learn that? You know, I specifically learned this idea from Matt Kiefer, who's a great, great guy. The, I think that like some of this comes with practice and just experience, right? Like just like any of these skills that we're talking about. Like I can remember specific cases where I was completely freaked out. And then I remembered that I just had to like use my bag valve mask and then I could take that second and do it. But like that, quick recognition by either myself or RT or somebody, right? Like that, that really just need to sort of do a quick thing, like a back of mask or, you know, we've all had that patient. We're like, why are they speaking? Why are they acting so weird? And then like, someone's like, Hey, did you check a glucose? And you're like, Oh yeah. So I think like some of those things come with practice and with time, but I do think at, you know, at this point in my career, I'm what, like four years out of residency. I think we've had enough cases where that really quick 
thing stabilize the moment and stabilize not only the patient but the room um i can think of a case two weeks ago where it was just like super 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 sick kid and all of a sudden like you you do the bag valve mask and you can take a second and you know everybody sort of like calms down because that like medical stabilization intervention also stabilizes stabilizes the room right same you know we all know that feeling like we're talking about the glucose right you check the glucose and it's 20 and everyone kind of relaxes because they like know how to fix it now. This quick test, fast test idea is something that I think we all can relate to in emergency medicine, you know, or, or whatever we're doing, that there are sometimes quick things that allow a stabilization period where you can then step back um, and do some of these other things we're talking about. And do you think that the the calmness and the space that comes with doing those actions, do you think that's a factor of removing uncertainty from the equation. You know, we, we talk about with my residents a lot, the idea of you have this complicated, very difficult, very uncertain sort of situation. And one of your first jobs is to break it into component pieces that are simpler. Does mm -hmm. this person need an airway right now? Yes or no. Does mm -hmm. this person need a breathing tube right now? Yes or no. Or a chest mm -hmm. tube? Yes or no. You know, those simple, easier to decide sort of moves. And, and part of that seems to be about uncertainty. I, I don't know if that rings true for you. Uh, the the glucose example, like the like low sugar, that is removing uncertainty. Everyone's like completely calm. But like mm -hmm. the really sick kid who's apneic, who you bag, just because they're like not hypoxic anymore doesn't remove the uncertainty of like, you know, how and when should we intubate this kid and what the heck is going on in the first place. Like, so I think that, you know, obviously removing uncertainty allows um, that period of stability but I also think that just remembering that um, you can take sort of like you were saying, right, like those like incremental steps in management that, you know, some being fast and critical, if you can execute those things, like you might still have uncertainty, but at least you can, at least, you know, when you have a sort of a stabilization period, you can try and think a little bit more clearly. And Eric, how do you, how do you train folks in these ideas? You know, I don't, I, I don't, um, I, I wish I had a great answer for that. <laughs> I, mean, I think we just have to, like, we have to model good behavior and we have to, uh, you know, expose trainees to volume to be getting experience with sick patients and letting people manage those situations as being sort of like the leader in the room and, and debriefing and giving feedback. Gosh, so, you know, some of these like really, really critical resuscitations. I'm not, I, I, to be honest, I'm not sure I consider myself an expert in that area. Um, but, you know, these stressful situations um, with patients and difficult dispositions, mm -hmm. you know, it's like thinking of another attending who would always be like, okay, we don't know what to do. Let's just go back to the bedside. And right, like, has that ever failed you? No, I don't think so. You know, and I think like reinforcing some of those behaviors with residents be like, huh, I'm not really sure what to do. Like, let's go back to the bedside. So I think there's specific like little things you can do clinically, like going back to the bedside or thinking about things in terms of fast tests and slow tests. Yeah. Otherwise, I wish there was like a good way to, I, I'm not sure that I know the answer. You know, I, I struggle with this every day still. Both you and I in our current uh, primary roles, both see patients and supervise the training of emerging ER doctors who are who are going through their residency, and so this is a really salient issue, which is not just sort of how did how did I end up in this place, but how do I create an environment and a structure which which helps the next generation of doctors sort of get better at this than I am, and and absorb these concepts and and put them into play quicker. And one yeah. of the things for us, like I think, like you said, we both have similar <laughs> job descriptions, I guess, right? Continuing to see a decent volume of patients on your own, I think is really helpful, right? Like going through these 
challenges and practicing clinical emergency medicine regularly is I think important because we because man we learn every single day right like mm-hmm. it's crazy yeah you you were saying a few minutes ago about how you know you go on to a shift and you go in with the realization that there's going to be something that I don't know today uh, and I think that humility uh, that humbleness is very real and very true which is that you're gonna you walk into basically every shift with the idea that there's going to be something that's an incredible challenge that you know I'm gonna have to figure out on my feet I'm only a few years out but my suspicion is that that sense won't go away. But also, interestingly, that that it's not just sheer numbers of exposure, right? It's not just the mm-hmm. the integral of patients over time. Because I think that it, as I look at the people that, that brought me up, that trained me, there's definite differences. You know, all of them are competent, skilled, board-certified ER doctors. But there's also the ones that, that sort of stand out as the paragons about being really, really good at delivering this type of knowledge under pressure. They must be doing something different in their in their training, in their careers that got them to that point. You know, I mean, I think all of this is a skill uh, and you might start with some ability of it, but, but it's a skill that can be trained and, and developed over time. Is there anything that you generally recommend for your maybe a senior level medical student or a beginning resident or something like that? Any any book, any podcast, any anything that that you recommend for folks to get started with on this on this sort of a journey? Gosh, you know, I I wasn't expecting the the part at the end about like other th- resources because I was thinking of uh, attendings who sort of like shaped me, like Caitlin mm-hmm. Bailey. Caitlin Bailey being one of the attendings at Highland who would tell a senior medical student like, what are the three things that you need to do? You need to work hard, remember what the vitals are, and don't lie. Like those are the only <laughs> things, right? That's good. That's good. Uh, um, but I think like I do think that there's something about like values and behaviors and how you think about and treat people that can can reinforce some of these other sort of tricks we've been talking about. Like we're you know, we're talking about like how do you stay calm or you know, how do you respond to pressure? Most of our conversation I feel like has been about like people and empathy and humility. Those are those are things that I think that we can teach people. And I think that we can't forget to teach those things as part of our training and, and we're talking to people who are students or residents or whatever. Man, is there is there something other than outside of medicine that I think has been helpful like for me, like exercise, like running, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I don't, I think everybody's got to kind of like find their own thing. Those other attendings that you've seen really, um really lead the way in this? Is there anything else specific that they do or that, that maybe you've adopted? I mean, there's all these like little mantras. I think the Carter Clements was like this Highland legend and he would always just say like, if you don't know what to do, be a dumb, diligent doctor and just like go through those steps, order that extra test if you're not really sure what's going on kind of thing. Um, mm. So I think that was always helpful. But, you know, I think like modeling these like earnest, genuine curiosity type of behaviors that are patient focused. You know, th- those are the things that I've I've walked away with for sure as being some of the most helpful things. You know, I think of other attendings like Doug White's another one who would be, you know, just like genuinely wanted to know what the patient's story was. What exactly did they say? You know, which can be, which is just like I think so helpful in trying to figure out what's going on. It's like you just have to be like genuinely and earnestly interested in in what someone has to say and, and again like these are sort of like behaviors and values and you know ways we approach interpersonal interactions uh, more so than learning how exactly to intubate a patient those are the things that I found the most useful I think you know especially in some of these other environments where you might be by yourself when you 
were starting to take over the ER in this small rural place. Uh, and all of a sudden, you, you know, you went from finishing residency to really being the leader of a team and of a department. How did that type of pressure manifest itself? And, and how did you deal with that sort of higher level of, of pressure? That was a difficult part of my job, you know, like, I was a year and a half out of residency and you're supposed to like be in charge of this group of people, some of whom have been doing emergency medicine for 20 years or more and recognizing that they had a lot to offer in terms of their both like clinical and personal experiences, but also the institutional memory and knowledge of the place was helpful. Um, you know, being open-minded to that. I think we were trying to make a lot of changes that you know no one likes change that much you know and the idea that we can try and redirect it to the patients was always like a really important thing about trying to do that and i think that relieves some stress right like we would have i remember you know very specific many interactions with other providers or nurses about a specific thing that we were doing with department flow or or policies procedures etc those were some tense discussions but like when and and felt really, really stressful. But when we could sort of like regroup and reorient that idea to improving patient care, you know, everybody genuinely wanted to improve patient care. No doubt about it. That helped me to remember. And that, that helped, you know, those conversations to sort of like redirect and say like, this is why I think we should do this. And there might be some like, well, let's do it slightly differently, or maybe we shouldn't do that. And I think that was always helpful. But I think sort of like refocusing, um, refocusing what the priorities are for a discussion, you know, redirecting that towards the patient, I think was always, uh, that helped a lot. Didn't help every time. And I wasn't able to do it that well every time. But I think that was when we were able to um, feel like there was some successes. I think that was part of the part of the um, special sauce, you know, right to get to get everybody on board with what the mission was, what the purpose is of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, especially at a place like that, right? Like it's so much about being driven by a shared sense of purpose. Yeah, how do you create that? Like it doesn't happen in a short period of time, certainly, but I think you can try and remember those in some of these stressful situations of trying to do some leadership stuff. Well, Eric, before we wrap this up here, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think we should or anything that you want to really to leave people with? My main takeaway is what's always helped me is trying to trying to always remember to be humble and to be compassionate with other people that I'm working with and also with patients. It's, you know, it doesn't sound directly related to responding to extreme pressure, but I think that's always what is tried to what I always try to do to get through those situations. Right on, man. Thank you so much for joining me on this. Well, folks, it looks like I accidentally deleted the section of the audio where Eric said you're welcome and that he was happy to be a part of the podcast. That said, I hope you enjoyed hearing from him as much as I did. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emergency Mind podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, but more importantly, I hope you found something in there that you can use next time you find yourself in the middle of an emergency. To learn more about what we talked about in this episode and about building your emergency mind in general, head over to our website at emergencymind.com. Thank you and take care.